Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at BPC. Now, over the summer months, we've been going through a series of, of messages um, that are really just focused on, on individual topics, different topics that are pertinent to the Christian faith. And so this morning, I was asked to cover the topic of community. So we're going to be looking at that topic this morning from God's Word. And the question that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about the nature of community was this question, what makes Christian community different from all other social opportunities that we have in our relational spheres? What makes Christian community unique? Now, you and I don't necessarily have that much in common. You don't necessarily have a lot in common with the people sitting next to you. We run in different, different groups, different walks of life, right? If you think about the people you spend time with Monday through Saturday, it's not necessarily the people you spend time with on, on Sunday, right? So you, you think about your book club, or your hiking club, your cycling team, your hunting buddies, your young mom's group. Those people aren't necessarily here on Sunday morning. Again, we don't share the same economic status, we don't work in the same industry, we don't vacation in the same locations, we don't necessarily like the same things. So what is it that gets us in the room together on Sunday mornings? Now, when I was first starting out in ministry, one of my ministry assignments was to visit people who were unable to attend the Sunday service for, for various reasons, maybe health issues or lack of mobility or, or things of that nature. And so what I would do is I would take the sermon notes from that week, whoever had been preaching, and I would, I would go visit people from the congregation who couldn't be there Sunday, and I, I would give a summary of the message, and we would read scripture together, and we would pray together. And I found myself visiting a, a particular older woman in the congregation regularly over a number of years. She was a Congolese woman in her 70s. She was very curt in her, her communication style. I always felt, I always got the sense I was being yelled at when I was talking with her. But that was just how she, how she talked. She had been a high up in the Congolese government for a number of years before a coup d'etat forced her to flee with a bullet in her leg. Her African French with a very heavy Lingalan accent made it difficult to understand her at times. She and I could not have been more different. And yet, we spent years together, praying together, reading God's word together, developing a friendship. See, the thing that got us in the room together was Jesus Christ. See, the difference between community and Christian community is the object of our worship. We're here because we worship the same God. We love the same Christ. We're bound together by the same spirit. So when it comes to studying community in scripture, there are a lot of places we could go. There are a lot of passages that, that cover this, this topic, that deal with, with these questions. But I want to take you this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, particularly verses 19 through 25. And the reason I want to go to these, these scriptures is because I think they help us situate community in context to who God is and what God has done. Christian community doesn't just happen. 
It happens because of who God is and what God has done. Now, this passage is, is going to be familiar to a lot of you. This is the one where we read, spur each other on toward love and good deeds. Do not abandon the assembly or do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But understand, before we get there, we have to understand who God is. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit you would work through this text this morning, in our hearts and in our minds, would you draw us closer to you through our study of your word? And Lord, would you draw us into more enriching, fulfilling community with one another? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we dive into this passage, there are a couple of assumptions that I, I want to deal with. I tend to do this often when I preach. I like to try to help us unload some of our, our hermeneutical or interpretive baggage. There's some things I think we need to be aware of on the topic of, of community. So before we, we turn to the text, let me just mention three, three things that I would hope we're aware of as we approach the text. The first thing I would urge you to be aware of is something called social Trinitarianism, okay? I've mentioned this in the notes, and the term itself is not that important, okay? I don't want to get hung up on the terms, but you have heard of this, and you have experienced it to some degree, and it's something I think we just need to be very cautious about. And this is this idea that God is a, a community, that the triune God is a community. You may have heard language like this among Christians. God is a community of independent, loving persons. Okay, and, and honestly, on the surface, that doesn't really sound too bad, right? Or, or, or maybe you've heard things like the Father, Son, and Spirit with their distinct intellects, wills, and centers of consciousness choose to come together in communal cooperation, and again, that doesn't really sound too bad. It sounds like a good basis for building community within the church. The idea that Christian community is based on community that exists within the Godhead. So again, these, I think these statements come from a desire to root human community in, in who God is. And I can, I can kind of sympathize with that a little bit, but I would warn us that the triune God probably should not be described as a community. Okay, we want to honor what God says, or what he says about himself in his word, right? What the word says about God. So rather than describing God as a community, I think it's safer to view God as a single being with one essence and one mind. 
Because if we describe and view the Trinity as a community, we're opening the door to denying the simplicity of God. And this is a very important doctrine taught in Scripture, the simplicity of God. We see this in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So we need to understand three in one, this concept of Trinity three in, in one. Because we can easily, if we deny the simplicity of God, fall into the heresy of tritheism, and that is the, the view that there are three separate gods. Okay, we want to avoid that. That's not what Scripture says about God. Or the heresy of partialism, that when added together, Father, Son, and Spirit, if you take them and add them together, you, you end up with, with a complete God. That's not the way Scripture describes God. So I would just be, be cautious with this idea that God is a community, that the triune God is a community. Okay? Second thing to be aware of, radical individualism. Now, this is something I think we all get. We live in this. It's kind of the, the American way. We can take care of it on our own. We can do it on our own. We can live it on our own. See, if you are living the Christian life on your own, you're not living the Christian life, okay? You're not living the Christian life. Now, there are sometimes circumstances, and I want to be sensitive to this, there are circumstances that may prevent people from fully engaging in the local church during particular times in their lives. I get that. We grant that. But consciously disengaging from the local church is a sin, okay? I didn't say it, okay? God said it in his word. It's a sin. To reject the local church is to reject the bride of Christ of which you are a part and for which Jesus gave his life. Don't give up on the church. God calls us to be in community. The third thing I want you to be aware of is radical communalism. Okay? So this is sometimes, a, just grows out of a reaction to individualism. So we, what we do is we swing the pendulum the other way and we embrace this idea that Christians should sell everything they own, give up their life, give up their autonomy, give up their identity and move into some sort of commune. And so we go to passages like Acts chapter two and other, other passages in the book of Acts and we take those passages out of context. We look at how the early Jewish Christians under persecution voluntarily practiced generosity in a very particular historic setting we take that out of context, we throw in some socialism, a little bit of Marxist philosophy, throw it in the pot, let it simmer, and out comes an unappetizing mixture of unpalatable and unbiblical sludge. <laughs> it, that's the way it is. We need to be careful with these ideas. I would encourage you to reject this idea of communalism. Scripture calls us to healthy, word-centered, spirit-directed community but it does not coerce us into communalism. So be aware of these things as we approach, approach the text this morning. So let's go there, Hebrews chapter 10. So keep your Bibles open. We'll take a look at these verses together. So as we look at, at these, these first verses of Hebrews uh, chapter 10, uh, starting with uh, verses 19, verse 20, verse 21, what we see here is that Christian community is rooted in who God is. Okay, and the question we want to ask, whenever you come to the, to the scripture, one of the first questions you should ask, what does this passage tell us about God? What do we see about God here? What kind of God is it who, who dwells in the holy of holies, the holy places behind the curtain? Who is this God who, who requires atoning work? 
the work of the high priest, the shed blood of an animal sacrifice. Who is this God? Now understand that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 hinges on the holiness of God. That is something very important in this text, the holiness of God. See, to understand Hebrews 10, you've got to go back to the books of the law, back to Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, back to the Pentateuch. What does it say about God? See, the book of Genesis relates the story of broken communion between a holy God and his people. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they rebelled against God, they sinned against him. The relationship was broken. God, who used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, this this image of proximity, of closeness, was broken because of sin. And so what we see happening through Scripture is that a holy God does not tolerate unholiness. The unholy were removed from enjoyment of God's glorious perfections because of their sin. And so as the story unfolds in these first books of the Bible, we see how this holy God begins to make provisions for the reparation, the restoration of his communion with his people. Now, the holiness of God is important because we are often unable to appreciate just how far we are removed from God. And we tend to err in two two ways. We attribute more holiness to ourselves than we should, or we grossly underestimate the holiness of God and end up reducing him. In other words, we attempt to bridge the gap between us and God by telling ourselves that God is not that good and that we are not that bad. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Look at it this way. No matter how much you've sinned or haven't sinned or whatever you think about your sin, look at it this way. Imagine two glasses, two drinking glasses. And the first contains water with the addition of one single drop of deadly poison, enough to kill you. The second glass contains nothing but deadly poison. So which one do you choose? The poison or the poison? Death or death, which one? See, the result is the same either way. Both must be rejected. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God must reject sinners no matter how much sin the sinner carries. Because of his holiness, he will not enter into relationship with sinners. See, the point of Hebrews 10 is that a holy God does not mingle with the unholy. Now, holiness is the only attribute of God in Scripture that is attributed to God three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But as Scripture, the story unfolds, this thrice holy God reaches out to sinful human beings and gives them his law as a grace to prepare them for restoration. The communion or community that has been broken between God and man, between man and man, is restored by God himself. So the key to understanding Christian community is to see that a holy God reaches out to us to repair our relationship to him so that our our relationship with one another might also be restored. Community is rooted in who God is. Now, the second thing we see in Hebrews chapter 10 is that Christian community is also rooted in what God has done. I want you to notice that the exhortation in verses 24 and 25 
to stir one another up in faith, to continue to meet together in fellowship. This is made possible because of the final and complete work of Jesus Christ at the cross. I also want you to notice that the description of atonement that we see in these verses is drawn straight from Levitical law. See, the author of Hebrews, if if, if we're going to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying, we've got to understand this in context to Old Testament law. The imagery of entering the holy places with or by blood in verse 19, that's a direct reference to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. The imagery of the curtain in verse 20 is a direct reference to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. The imagery of a great or high priest in verse 21 is again a direct reference to Leviticus 16. And if you look at this other language in in the following verses, sprinkling, cleansing, water purification, all of that is a direct reference back to Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was a very special day in the lives of the Jewish people. On the 10th day of the seventh month, Yom Kippur, as it's known in Hebrew, this was the day when the high priest would make provision for the sins of Israel. And so it would start by him entering into the the, the court, the courtyard of the temple. He would bathe his hands and feet in the laver, the bronze laver, going through a ritual purification to prepare himself to offer the sacrifice. Then he would enter the temple area and other priests would help him dress in the sacred garments of the high priest, a linen robe, a linen tunic, a linen sash around his waist, a linen turban on his head. All these garments would be situated, and then he would go and sacrifice a bull, a young bull, on his behalf. He would make atonement for his sins first, the sins of his family, before he would even enter into the temple. Now, once he had made provision for his own sin, he would go to make provision for the sins of the people of Israel. Two goats would be brought. The goat of expiation. This is the scapegoat. So he would place his hands symbolically on on the, the, the head of the goat, or actually literally place his hands on the head of the goat and symbolically transfer the sin of Israel into the scapegoat, and it would be sent out into the wilderness, the goat of expiation. The second goat was the goat of propitiation, This is the goat that would bear God's wrath against sin. And so he would slash the throat of this goat, collect its blood, and carry that blood into the Holy of Holies, a place that the priest could only enter once a year. So there would be two gold lampstands in the Holy of Holies. They would light incense in these stands and create a cloud of incense, a cloud of smoke. And this would mask the glory of God from the high priest so he would not be struck down and and destroyed by God's glory. So God would descend into this cloud of incense and then the priest would sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, thus making atonement for the sins of the people. You see how complex this whole system was. The death, the blood. You see, and what the author of Hebrews is pointing to is that Jesus Christ himself went through this ritual on our behalf. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our expiation. Christ is our purification. His cross is the altar. His flesh is the torn curtain. His blood is our salvation. His death is our life. His resurrection is our hope. His perfection is our sanctification. 
His righteousness is our restitution. He's our atoning sacrifice to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen. That is what Christ has done. He made a new and living way. He opened the door that we might have relationship with God. He restored the broken community. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our minds around this brutal sacrificial system. We, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. But I think we can all understand just how difficult this process was. We can imagine maybe in our modern world something like going through really, really strict security protocols, screening to get into a top secret location, that sort of thing. You show your ID, you enter the gate, you scan your barcode, you go through a metal detector, you do the retina scan, you get patted down, checked for weapons, then you're accompanied by armed guards down a hallway, then you do a fingerprint scan, a voice identification, level after level of screening. Finally, you're in. Finally, you're through the door. See, the idea is Christ opened the door. He made a new and living way on our behalf. So Christian community is about who God is, and it's about what God has done for us. God has made the way. Christ has made the way. He's restored our relationships. This is the, the heart of Christian community. So it begins with what God has done, who he is for the purpose of pointing us back to who God is and what he's done. See, Christian community is not just a social club. It is deep fellowship with God and with his people. So here's what Hebrews 10 tells us. After we've worked our way through from verses 19 through verses, verse 23, we finally get to this, this piece about community. And here's what it tells us. Here's what it tells us to do. Verse 24, start provoking one another. So it says, provoke each other. The word actually from Greek translates as stir up or spur on. That's what we have in our, our modern translation, but it really means to irritate, to irritate each other into action, to incite change, to aggravate each other toward love and good deeds. It's not a comfortable thing. Community is a risk, you see. That's what the passage is telling us. Community is a risk. It means people might get to know you pretty well. It's kind of scary. People might get to know you. They might start to see your sin. They might speak into your life. You might have to speak into their life a little bit. Right? They might need you. You will be asked to serve. You will be asked to care. It's all scary stuff, I realize. You'll, you, you'll get uncomfortable. You'll have to be vulnerable. You will be stretched. You'll be exhorted, you'll be encouraged, you'll be rebuked, you might be hurt, but you will experience joy. That's the idea. Spur one another on. Provoke each other a little bit to love and good deeds. You see, the, the people I'm closest to are probably the people that irritate me the most. Right? I think we can all relate. Family members, close friends. But these are also the people I enjoy the most. Community is a risk. Growth is painful. Sanctification is a process. But community is not just a suggestion that God gives us. It is a commandment. Radical individualism needs to be stamped out. It needs to be stamped out of our lives. 
You can't live the Christian life alone. Jesus paid far too high a price. He paid a price so that we could commune with God and commune with one another. So here are just a few suggestions. And I would urge you this week, think, think on this. How can you create community? How can you get more involved in Christian community? But let me give you a few suggestions. Here's one. Don't head straight for the door after the service. How about that? We'll start simple. Linger a little bit. Linger awkwardly if you need to. That's okay. We've got to start somewhere, right? Find someone you don't know and introduce yourself. Create space in your life to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So linger. That's the first thing. Second thing I'd I'd ask you to do, something to think about, to pray about, identify someone here that you'd like to get to know better this week. And then invite that person out for coffee or for a hike or, or for some sort of activity. In fact, I would love to see evergreen coffee shops overwhelmed this week with members of Bergen Park Church in fellowship. Can we do that this week? Let's try that, okay? Invite someone out. Get to know someone. A third thing, I'll make a plug for growth groups, okay? Join a growth group. Get involved in fellowship. Okay, we, we talked about this training that I'm going to be doing next, next Sunday with growth group leaders. The follow-up from that, in a few weeks, we're going to try to launch some new groups, If you're not plugged into some sort of Bible study or some sort of fellowship group, we'd love to help you get connected, okay? These are just some practical things we can do to create community. Now, some of this may feel a little bit contrived at times, but sometimes that's where we need to start, right? And then we, we grow into it a little bit. Eventually, our thinking and our culture becomes transformed, You might start to see that you are scheduling your time around your Christian friends so that you can be with them. You might find that your Christian community is dropping in on you, unannounced. Some people like that, some people don't, but you're creating these relationships. You might find yourself in long, deep conversations over meaningful topics. That's what Christian community is. Community happens when we allow God's love for us to affect our love for his church. We need to love the church. Don't give up on the church. It then becomes more natural for us to be together, to pray together, to share in one another's burdens, to spur each other on. So our desire is to be in communion with God, and that will lead us into communion with one another. Now, as we talk about Community and communion this morning, one way we, we celebrate Christian community is through the celebration of communion, right? The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. So I want to invite you to actually grab the elements. Uh, we have a table in the back. Otherwise, up here in the front, you can, you can pick up the, the communion elements. And really, the idea behind communion is this is something we do to worship our Lord, to worship our God, but also to encourage one another in the faith, right? To spur one another on in love and good deeds. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul presents the Lord's Supper, this is in the context actually of church discipline. If you go back and look at the context of the passage, the idea of submitting ourselves to the authority of the church, the elders, each other, holding each other accountable in Christ. 
So I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and just read to you what the Apostle Paul writes concerning communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So again, this is an opportunity for us to publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ. When you take the communion, you are professing faith in Jesus. And those around you are witnessing that act of profession of faith. This is a way we build each other up in the faith. So let's take communion together. Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord God, we are grateful that you are at the very center of our relationships. That we can be here this morning in love to encourage one another to be together because of what you have done for us. You've reconciled people from every walk of life, every background, every kind of sin. You have forgiven us. You have brought us together and restored us and called us into relationship. And Lord, so we ask that you would guide us in our relationships, that we would be responsible and biblical in our relationships. Lord, that you would make us a people of, of true community, true fellowship in the word, in the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.